So we've been in this series in the Gospel of John. It's called Into the Mystic, and what I'm doing is looking at some of the symbolism that is being portrayed in the book. This is very unique to John's Gospel. Uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are more kind of historical in the way they approach the stories of Jesus. Uh, the Gospel of John, though, takes some of the teachings of Jesus, some of the symbolism that Jesus uses in his teaching, and communicates in a variety of ways at a deeper level than sometimes we see at uh, uh, just kind of a surface glance. So over the last few weeks, we've seen that the Gospel of John has more to it than meets the eye. And the more you read a book like the Gospel of John, the more you begin to see some of these pieces develop. So by way of reminder, um, the idea of mysticism is not this idea of uh, some type of out-of-body experience. Mysticism is this idea of when we encounter those mysterious moments of life that we can't fully explain, but we know they happen and they affect us, and they can be in encounters, experiences, or events that sometimes creates meaning or movement in our life or kind of changes the way we see things around us. So that's what we mean by moving into the mystic, using these symbols that we have been uh, uh, using on our voyage through this life. So we've been talking about the sailors that are on the quest for a type of life that is abundant. Remember, Jesus came and he said in John chapter 10, I came to give you life and to give that to you in abundance. In other words, the idea of flourishing is a part of the ongoing purpose of Jesus in his teachings. Today, we're going to talk about a man that had been born blind. And it will raise a controversy because Jesus will give to him sight. Now, the way we're going to do it today is we're going to kind of look at it uh, one paragraph at a time because if I read the whole chapter, it would just take a, a lengthy amount of time and you would probably forget some of these points. So what I'm going to do is use kind of a skeletal idea behind it. What I want you to look for is that in the moments in the Gospel of John, there are seven miracles that are performed, and these are these mystical moments that leave those that are hearing Jesus scratching their heads at times. We've already looked at his changing the water to wine, healing a royal official son, healing the paralytic at Bethesda, feeding the multitude, walking on water. Now we've come down to the last two, the man born blind, and next week we'll talk about the raising of Lazarus from the dead. So in John chapters 1 through 11, there's these seven miracles that Jesus performs. There are a lot more miracles in Matthew, Mark, and Luke that are recorded, but John selects seven of them. Then we are at the beginning of seven statements Jesus makes about himself, seven I am statements. We saw the first one last week, I am the bread of life. Today we see, I am the light of the world, and then we will see some of the others as we continue in this study to come. So I've been trying to kind of illustrate how this book kind of works together, and so the symbolism in this gospel, these are seven signs that lead to life. Those are the seven miracles that are recorded. But you'll see in red that each miracle produces a tension point in the lives of the religious leaders who see it, who want to explain it away. We'll see that in a moment today. But in the midst of these seven signs are these seven I am statements, and the tension so far 
have been him cleansing the temple, driving out the money changers in chapter 2, healing on the Sabbath, which will occur again today. When Jesus heals the man born blind, he will do it on the holy day of the Sabbath. Violating Torah law is part of this idea of violating the Sabbath. I skipped over one, the taboo relationship where Jesus accepts a drink of water from a Samaritan woman in the well in chapter 4 is seen as a no-no. And then what we will find today is there's a tension point that develops when Jesus will accuse the religious leaders of his day of being spiritually blind. And that's where it ties in to the man who is healed from blindness, but they choose not to be healed from blindness. So, The way this kind of works in a cycle is this. He feeds the 5,000, he walks on water, heals the blind man, will raise the dead. But in each of those miracles, there is a statement that stands out. So in the feeding of the 5,000, he says, I am the bread of life. When he walks on water, he tells the disciples, do not be afraid. In the healing of the blind man, he says, I'm the light of the world. And then next week we will see as he raises Lazarus from the dead. He will say, I am the resurrection and the life. So all of these things are giving to us a portrait of how John wants to communicate the person and work of Jesus. The problem is the growing resistance. In the Gospel of John, because Jesus performs some of these things uh, that are in violation of Torah law, he will get in trouble with the religious leaders. And as he does so, one of the things that he does is defend himself and call the religious leaders as those that are using their position to control the people rather than giving to them life. So here's how I'd like to do this message today. The story, the skeleton of the story, the symbolism of the story, and then the significance of it, okay? So this is what I want you to remember. If you forget everything else this morning, here's what I want you to remember. The story is built upon a man blind from birth, and then Jesus will heal this man by making mud and putting it on his eyes. So the phrase I want you to remember is made from earth, and then after this man has been interrogated by the Pharisees, Jesus will affirm his worth. So blind from birth, made from earth, affirming of worth. So keep that in your mind as we look at the text In John chapter 9, the skeleton of the uh, story is found in different paragraphs, and here's what it looks like. So I'm going to kind of read it as we move along through this so you hear the whole story, and then we'll uh, talk a little bit about what it means. Now, in John chapter 9, it begins in verse 1, as he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. Now, what we're not told in this chapter is that Jesus is in Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles. It's also called the Feast of Booze, which happens once a year, where the people of Israel would travel to Jerusalem. They would participate in a festival celebrating God's goodness to them as they wandered in the wilderness, as they exited Egypt and moved toward the Promised Land. And so the tabernacle idea is... There's this encampment of a community of people that are being provided for by God, the provision of manna, and then the provision of water in the wilderness. 
there is this messianic hope that develops in the life of the nation, and each time the Jewish people come to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of the Passover or the Feast of Tabernacles, there's this expectation that someday, someday a Messiah will come that will lead them into permanent freedom and with permanent blessing. Now, the thing we need to keep in mind when we look at this is in verse 22 of John chapter 9, the reason this story is being told is because the small group of followers that were followers of John, who is the author of this gospel, the Johannine community, they are being kicked out of the synagogue because they become followers of Jesus. So this book has been written many years later, and you have this small community that now is being excommunicated and kicked out of the synagogue because they think Jesus is the light of the world and the Messiah. And those that want to stick true to their religious roots say, we can no longer have you participating with us on Shabbat, on the Sabbath. And so in verse 22, it says here, uh, the parents of this blind man said that they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who already had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. So kind of working behind the scenes here is intimidation. Working behind the scenes is religious power, and there's this idea of you better fall in line, you better fall in line if you want to stay in the synagogue and be part of this community. If you don't, you're out. Okay, just kind of keep that in the back of your mind. So here's this man that has been born blind. He's in Jerusalem. He is near the temple precinct. He has been an individual that has been begging for resources for years. He's been blind since birth, and the only way he's going to put meal on the table if, is if somebody walks by and throws a few coins down into his hand, okay? Jesus wa walks along, and he sees this blind man, and as he does so, um, his disciples speak up. Point number two is the point about sin and sickness. Here's what the disciples said. He said, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus said, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. In other words, there was an assumption. The assumption was, I think, the same thing we sometimes feel when something goes wrong in our life. I think all of us have asked the question at some point when things have gone south, what did I do to deserve this, right? Okay, why is God punishing me because this is happening in my life? Well, that was the common assumption in Jesus' day. If a person is suffering in some capacity, and in this case, all his life, then what did he do wrong that he deserved this retribution from God? Okay, so the disciples speak up and they say, what did he do wrong? Well, he's been blind since birth. So it's not something that actually happened after birth. So they follow up and say, did his parents do something wrong, right? That this man is being punished in this capacity. So what we find taking place is Jesus notes this blind man. And then the disciples ask the question, and Jesus says, neither. 
He says, neither. And then he goes on and says, I'm the light of the world. Verse 4, as long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. And after saying this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with his saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. So now Jesus makes a proclamation, I'm the light of the world, I've come to give the world sight. But then he does something very unusual. He begins to put mud on the eyes of the blind man. You know, in other miracles, he speaks and they're healed. He says to the lame man, get up and walk, and he gets up and walks. But in this case, the healing doesn't happen instantaneously. There's a secondary uh, uh, step to it. And in this case, Jesus does something very intentional. This goes all the way back to the book of Genesis. Uh, when uh, Adam is created, God says, from dust you've come and to dust you shall return. Now, the mud is made out of the dust here. And so he makes this little, uh, uh, some type of, uh, I don't know what you want to call it, some type of therapeutic uh, mud, puts it on his eyes. And even then he's not healed because then the man is told this. He says, go, wash in the pool of Siloam. The word Siloam means scent. Go to the pool of scent, S-E-N-T. So the man went and he washed and he came home seen. So it wasn't until after this man uh, acted upon the trust that he had in Jesus that he goes, he washes his face and he opens his eyes, and now he can see for the first time the objects around him. Then the text goes on. And now the neighbors get in on it. In verses 13 through 17, he goes home, and verse 8 says, His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, Isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, No, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. How then were your eyes open, they asked. He replied, the man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. And he told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and I washed and then I could see. Where is this man, they asked him. I don't know, he said. So the neighbors are questioning this miracle. Uh, you know, are you sure this happened? Um, and the neighbors begin to question him here, and they hear him say, I don't know where he's at. And then the Pharisees enter the story. The Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, come to these neighbors and to the parents of this man, and he goes on and it says this, they brought to the Pharisees the man who had been blind. Now the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was the Sabbath. Therefore the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I washed and now I see. And some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. And others asked, how can a sinner perform such signs so they were divided? Then they turned again to the blind man what have you to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. So now he's being interrogated by the religious leaders. I've already told you that the religious leaders are into intimidating the people to fall in line, right? Well, 
what happens here is after uh, he's interrogated, um, the parents are then interrogated. The Pharisee says, oh, this can't have happened. Um, this is the wrong identification. They get this guy's parents, and here's what it says. They still did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. Is this your son, they asked? Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it that now he can see? We know he is our son, the parents asked, and we know that he was born blind. But how can he see now? Or who opened his eyes? We don't know. Ask him. He's of age. He will speak for himself. And his parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who had already decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. That's why the parents said, he is of age, ask him. Notice what the parents are doing. They're uh, squirming a little bit, right? And so what they do is they don't answer outward by saying, yes, he's healed, um, but they do identify this man as their son. No, that's not a case of mistaken identity. That's our son. How is it that he is healed? Well, you're going to have to ask him, not ask us. Do you see how they get out from under that a little bit? So then the Pharisees go back and re-interrogate the healed man again, and here's how this goes, and we're almost to the end of the story now. A second time, they summon the man who had been blind, give glory to God by telling the truth, they said, we know this man is a sinner. And he replied, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. And then they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered, I've told you already and you did not listen. Why do you, why? Do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? Then they hurled insults at him and said, you are this fellow's disciples. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses. But as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. Okay, now there's a new dimension into the story. We're followers of Moses. We don't know where this guy is from. In an earlier chapter, they accused Jesus of doing miracles by the power of Satan and that he was a Samaritan. Okay? In other words, he's not a true Jewish individual. He's, he's got mixed blood in him. Well, that's not true. Jesus and all his disciples were Jewish. And what we find is that they are trying to discount what he is doing by attacking his ethnicity, by attacking the power by which he's doing these miracles. So I love the way the man responds. He uses flawless logic, really. He says, Jesus healed my eyes. God doesn't listen to sinners, so Jesus can't be a sinner. This is not common uh, way of healing, but... If Jesus couldn't, uh, uh, if, if Jesus isn't Messiah, he couldn't do this miracle. So he uses this kind of flawless logic and responds to them. Now, the way the story finishes here is Jesus will come back a second time to this man, and he's going to reveal himself to this man. It begins in verse uh, 35. Uh, it goes on and it says this, the man answered, now that is remarkable, verse 30, you don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, he listens to the godly person who does his will. 
nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. To this they replied, you were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. So now the parents were afraid of that and he gets excommunicated. But Jesus comes to his aid and says to him, Jesus heard that they had thrown him out. And when he found him, he said, do you believe in the son of man? Who is he, sir? They asked. He asked, uh, tell me so that I may believe in him. Jesus said, you have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. And Jesus said, for judgment, I have come into this world so that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. And some of the Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, what, are we blind too? Bingo, they caught the connection, right? Okay, Jesus said, if you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim that you can see, your guilt remains. There's the point of the story. The religious leaders are not allowing their faith to develop or evolve, but they continue to choose to kind of be stuck in the way that they are. And because of that, there's a blindness to them. But this man who believes in Christ is seeing his world open up to him. So what can we do with this uh, story? Here's the symbolism of the story. The story, I think, symbolizes several things. The realm of God is beyond that which the human mind can comprehend. We are all blind from birth. In other words, none of us can fully understand God without this ongoing process and evolution of growing in our understanding of God. When we come into this world, we learn things one step at a time. We learn to walk. We learn to talk. We learn to grow in our education opportunities, and we continue to evolve. But we are all blind from birth. We need to be taught those things by our parents, and by our grandparents, and by our teachers, and so forth, right? Well, what we find is that when we enter into this world, we enter into a very risky proposition. None of us are guaranteed an easy life. None of us go through life without having difficulties. None of us go through life without having some suffering. But if we assume that what we're experiencing, our grief, our heartache, our disappointment, those things are all signs of God's disfavor with us, we've missed the point. Jesus said, this man didn't do anything wrong. His parents didn't do anything wrong. You have to change your perception. You have to change the way you look at life. You have to change and grow and understand that some of the things that you believe in, well, that's all part of the journey, but some of those things you've got to let go of. You've got to grow, and you've got to continue to evolve. So he says, this man didn't do anything wrong. And he uses the mud as a symbol. He is human. We're all human. We all have various shortcomings, right? We all have misunderstandings. We all have to kind of relearn the way we look at life. And we all have new opportunities and we all have new information that continues to evolve. And when that comes along, 
We make a choice. Am I going to continue to ignore it? Am I going to continue to live in the world as I want it to be? Or am I going to allow myself to grow? And I don't put pressure on myself because I'm made from the earth. I'm made of mud. I'm fallible. I have good points and bad points. I have strengths. I have weaknesses. We all do, right? And sometimes we not only need to learn, we need to relearn. But these Pharisees didn't want to do that. What's interesting is the way Jesus comes back to this man. Jesus could have went on, right? Jesus could have said, well, I healed you. That's all I'm going to do for you. But this man is being interrogated by the Pharisees. And in a sense, he's being kind of let down by his parents. His parents, operating out of fear, are not choosing to embrace and saying, He's born from, uh, blind from birth. That's the way it is. This is our son. Rather, he said, well, go ask him. He'll tell you. Do you see how he's, they're trying to protect their own, um, their own interests there? But Jesus comes back, and this interrogated man, who has been excommunicated by the religious leaders, is given an affirmation of worth at the end of the chapter. Jesus asks him, you have now seen him. He's the one speaking to you. And he says, do you believe in the Son of Man? And the man says, Lord, I believe. And he says, for this judgment, I have come into the world. The blind will see, and those who see will become blind. Now, see, put in uh, quotation marks. The religious leaders thought that they saw, right? But it was only their world that they saw. They didn't see the bigger picture. And so think about this in relationship to our lives. Think about the journey that we take through our lives. Every decade we look back on and we see that we are different individuals than the decade before, right? We continue to grow, we continue to learn, we continue to adapt, we continue to assimilate all kinds of different things. And that's a part of growth and that's a part of seeing. And yet other people sometimes get locked in their own little world. And in that little lockbox, they don't see anything, but maybe through a peephole. You know people like that? I do. They haven't grown an inch in the many years that they've claimed to be a follower of Christ. Actually, many times they adapt simple outlooks that are easy rather than wrestling with difficult things. And when you become a follower of Jesus, one of the things that happens is that you have to wrestle with things and you have to learn and you have to grow and you have to question some of the assumptions maybe that you've carried for a long time. So that brings us to the last thing. What is the significance of this story? I think there are four of them. Number one, our ways of understanding our humanity and God is always in evolving. It frustrates me to no end that a lot of times what happens is that in religious circles, there is still the use of fear as a way of controlling people. Isn't that interesting? So you go into a religious community, a church, a synagogue, uh, a mosque, whatever it might be, and those that are in power want to retain power. And one of the ways they, they retain power is they throw fear out at you as a way of controlling you. That's not freedom. That's not a full life. All that is is being taken advantage of. 
Our ways of understanding our humanity and God is always evolving. If we are truly encouraging people to continue to grow in the grace and in the knowledge of the Lord, we encourage the growth. We encourage the uh, opportunity to look at things differently than the way that we looked at them before. But religion is usually operating out of some type of box. And that box is always wanting to keep you in it. And so what happens is some people never, ever grow in their spirit. They never enlarge their soul at all because this is what they've been told. And out of fear of punishment, uh, they allow that to continue to shape them. You know, it is not easy to understand Jesus. A lot of the things that he says, we scratch our head, don't we? What did he mean by that? And sometimes we have to contemplate it, and there we have to see that the new light that sometimes emerges over time is the type of light that all of a sudden turns a light on, and then we can see things differently. You know, we're not that far away from St. Patrick's Day. That was the day that I was told to leave my previous position because I had evolved, because I had changed my perspective on some things, because there were some things that didn't make sense anymore. And that became a threat to my previous ministry. And so here it is, almost eight years later, and what we might see is that people do not change over time, even though it's changed for the better. When it makes you more loving, when it makes you more compassionate, when it makes you an individual that can be trusted, all those type of things, well, that's a good thing. That's a wonderful thing. That's what's making you more like this God of love that we claim to know through Christ. So, our faith is always evolving. Second, the old is no more, but the new is not yet. A lot of times people think they can prevent things from changing. Let me ask you a question. Do you look differently today than you did 20 years ago? You can't prevent that from happening, right? Change is always going to come, and with change comes new information that you need to wrestle with. Number three, we can choose to embrace it and begin to see things differently or stay stuck in the past and continue to be blind. This affects all kinds of things, doesn't it? It affects the way we interact with our family. It affects the way we interact with our coworkers, to interact with people that are in the neighborhood. And sometimes what we do is we fail to understand that we're not at the same point in life as, as some other people, right? We have to become more understanding that we grew over time and sometimes the things that maybe we see differently now will take more time for somebody else. Lastly, number four, the survival of the human race in many ways is dependent on Jesus giving this type of enlightenment as the light of the world. And I love the fact that he used mud. Think about mud. Ordinary mud, <laughs> the stuff we scrape off our shoes, right? The stuff that we try to step over. Jesus uses mud to show that's just a part of the human experience as we walk through the trails of this world. 
Indeed, we'll get some mud on our shoes, and we'll get some mud on our pants. And there are times, though, that that becomes instrumental as our eyes are open to things maybe that we did not see previously. So here's what I want you to remember. We are all blind from birth. We are all made of earth, right? All people have worth. All people have worth. And I think we have to grow into that. And I think the entire human species is dependent upon all people from all cultures understanding they have certain blind spots. They are human. And all people are deserving of worth. Let's close in prayer and then we're going to head on over and have lunch together. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for this day that we have gathered. We thank you for the privilege that is ours to learn, to grow, to see some of the stories and some of the miracles that give to us a significant way of growth, a significant way of maturing in our faith. I pray that we might be able to apply this in our own context we realize the Gospel of John had a very specific context in which John was writing, but these stories do have application to our context as well. So whatever we're facing this week, we pray that we will indeed realize maybe we've had some blindness in those areas, and that indeed we're human and none of us are perfect. But you open our eyes and you help us to see things differently. And hopefully, Lord, that makes us more compassionate people. We thank you for this Lord's Day and for the time we'll have at lunch in a few moments. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for coming, everyone.